Cambridge 105 Radio, this is The Business of Cambridge with Sue Keogh. Series 2, Episode 2, Communicate, is brought to you by our friends at CMR, outside-the-box business thinking. Hello and welcome to The Business of Cambridge. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from our property expert on a shift to home working. But first, we're talking comms. Martin Sibley founded disability and inclusion agency Purple Goat in 2020. And Claire Thompson is the MD of communications consultancy Agility Life Sciences. I was curious to know about marketing techniques for such clearly defined audiences and to get their thoughts on government communications throughout the pandemic. Martin, tell me a little bit more about Purple Goat. What was the problem you were trying to solve when you founded the agency? I suppose the first bit I was mentioning is I have a disability um, and that's just because of the, the general life experience really of the world maybe not being designed for everyone, you know, people with disabilities and on a personal level having to sort of overcome various barriers in my life. And then that sort of stemmed through into my career where I've worked at a disability charity, done a lot of you know, advocacy and campaigning, and then really in the end um, got more and more interested and involved in the business case of disability and inclusion. Um, and that's sort of been boiling up for a few years with different awareness campaigns and different agendas and initiatives. But I think ultimately Purple Goat is bringing the sort of marketing solution. It's the the insights from an audience and it's the, the comms to an audience that for whatever different reasons we can look back on over history, just haven't really been done in the normal business marketing way when when engaging disabled people. So it's absolutely got to benefit businesses on the profit line as well. And Martin, I've got to ask you, where's the name from, Purple Goat? I partnered with the Goat Agency, who are sort of global pioneers of social influencer marketing. I believe the Goat stands for greatest of all time and they very much are there around connecting brands with the younger market and then purple is the color synonymous with disability spending power you know we've got the the green market you know the pink pound the silver pound so we now have the purple pound so that's where purple goat comes from and that's the kind of thing that makes people really pay attention isn't it so what what is tell me a bit more about the business case that you were mentioning so, yeah, the population of disabled people globally is 1.3 billion people. In the UK, there's 14 million people that identify as, as having a disability. And then the spending power is $8 trillion globally and about £260 billion in the UK. So when businesses embrace that market, there's absolutely, you know, profit and money to be had there. And that's the point that a lot of companies start paying attention, I imagine. Um, Claire, tell me about a typical client for you. Our clients range from tiny uh, companies that have uh, spun out of universities or spun out of larger companies, all the way up to multinationals. So what we do is we work with uh, organisations across the life science industry and we help them to turn their ideas into products There's no point in having a great idea if you can't get any money behind it. So we help them to figure out what their business case is, what markets they should go into. So what's the gap in the market and the market for the gap and putting together that that plan to help them to raise investment or to grow. And I guess what underpins everything that we do is helping our clients to tell their story. I'm a scientist and I I think of all of the 
10,000 scientists I've worked with over the years, very few would argue when I say that we're really not very good at telling people the true impact of what we do. So whether it's a, a small biotech who have got um, a new molecule and they need to get investment for that, we are positioning them, thinking about, okay, who are your competitors? What makes your product better than theirs? And what's their value proposition? And how can they sell this in, internally? So we're always thinking about what's the audience? What are the key messages you need to get across? And what's the best way to do that? So if you're a scientist yourself, then you speak the language of the people that you're working with. But how do you translate all of this into something that investors or the general public can understand? We always have to put ourselves in the position of that audience. Um, so the investors will be looking for something specific around what's the nugget in this idea? Why should they invest in it? And probably most importantly, when they're going to get their money and more back. From a, a patient or a public perspective, they're not really interested in how much this costs. They're interested in when are they going to get this product? When is this medicine going to get to the market? And uh, can they pronounce the name? So we're always thinking of who the audience is, is going to be and how we can make the messaging memorable for them and impactful. So let's think about some trends as well. Uh, Martin, one sector where I've noticed marketing becoming more inclusive is in fashion. So you look at, say, underwear ads, and there's noticeably more folds of skin on display nowadays compared to when I was growing up, and it was all stick-thin models with any lumps or bumps airbrushed out. But but wider than that, beyond that, people like M&S, they've got the easy dressing range in baby clothes and school wear. Nike have their range of shoes that you can put on hands-free. You get models in wheelchairs in Tommy Hilfiger campaigns. So who are the brands out there that you see who are doing this well? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a trend within advertising and marketing that's everyday people represented and that, you know, across the spectrum. And so obviously that, from the disability point, has been a really big positive. Um, I think around the disability agenda, we found that 0.06% of adverts were previously featuring disabled people even though the, the full population is 22 percent so yeah it, it's been really interesting watch the sort of gradual awakening if you like in terms of brands I mean I think you cited the main leaders in the fashion world I know Tommy Hilfiger have done quite a lot around sort of adapted clothing for disabled people and I suppose it's in a way we can break down that sometimes the actual product needs to be altered um so you know as you said with the fashion the, the easy dress clothing and the, and the nike train so that that's an innovation and and a change of the product but what we have found not just in fashion but in lots of industries when products have been made almost for certain types of disabilities it actually makes the experience and the usability of the product better for everyone and prime example of that is the sort of voice activation that we have on our phones. I think uh, Siri was originally you know, invented very much about people that weren't able to operate the, the phones with the hand and all that kind of stuff. So there's definitely something about innovation of products for disabled people that actually is a better experience for everybody. And then there's this other part around the product might be exactly the same, but it's about representation of different groups so that when we're watching you know, on social media or even on TV ads, that sense of seeing people just like us in the marketing is definitely another trend we're seeing. 
Well, that's really good to hear. You're listening to The Business of Cambridge and today I'm talking comms with Martin Sibley and Claire Thompson. And I'd love your thoughts on government communications of late throughout this massive healthcare crisis. To my mind, it's been a series of mixed messages. I must have lost count of all the different fonts they've used in graphics, never mind the rest of it. Claire, what's your verdict? I agree with you. I think the government comms have been confusing at best, even misleading at worst. And and I think we'll all agree that comms, it's not just about the words that you use. You have to live and breathe them. It's really about deeds and not just words. And after the Dominic Cummings debacle, well, all of that fell apart. And even the, the recent campaign showing women doing all the caring and the cleaning activities while a man lounged on the sofa. I mean, these types of things are just archaic. And the, the fact that that was only pulled after it went viral and the, the sexism comments were, were rife after that, I, I think it's just... It, it's ludicrous, really. The The messaging really needs to be as clear and as simple as possible. So if they want to stick with these three bullet points, which I think is a great thing to do, more than three makes it confusing, the three could be simply stay at home if you must go out, wear a mask, and when it's your turn, get vaccinated. So nice and clear and simple. And I think consistency is really important, isn't it, instead of changing it too frequently. How about you, Martin? What what have you what are your thoughts on government communications relating to COVID? Yeah, I mean very much echoing Claire's thoughts and sentiments there. I suppose just building upon that, the the big thing from the disability perspective was the abhorrent lack of BSL interpretation for uh, the deaf community that rely on BSL for their form of communication. Obviously, we're talking about communication on today's show. And, uh, you know, for, for people with BSL, I don't have the stat to hand, but let's just say you know, it's definitely not a handful of people in the UK that rely on BSL. There's a, a large community. And yeah, the, all of the government comms, these important updates about the pandemic and how to stay safe and our civic duty for, you know, protecting others and, and a, you know, large part of the disabled community were simply unable to to receive that message. Yeah, I thought it it keeps on striking me as strange that every time you see Nicola Sturgeon speak, there's always someone doing sign language next to her on the screen. So I'm not quite sure why it's been so difficult for them to to put in place um, south of the border. On the positive front with COVID, Claire, have you seen any trends in life science and healthcare accelerated in the way that we communicate? Yes, I have. And I, and I think that there's been a lot of news and it's it's really hard to cut through the noise. So certainly professional networks like LinkedIn, um, there's been so much information on there. And what we have found that's actually cut through the noise are stories about people and purpose rather than products and profits. And companies like AstraZeneca have talked a lot about people and how they're supporting them through equality and diversity, um, even disability and I think that's fantastic, given that they are one of um, the, the main manufacturers of the coronavirus vaccine. And also um, Abcam, Cambridge-based company, very much reliant on products and services. They are focusing on people and allowing their people to talk about the product. So I think this is a trend. I really hope this is a trend that we continue with because people work with people, no matter what industry we're, we are in. If we focus on people and we focus on purpose, if we take away that focus on products and profit, then I think it's to benefit us all. Would you say that we've all become a little bit more science literate? And if so, how can we encourage this so it continues? 
I really hope so. All eyes have been on the pharma industry, which is great. You know, the fabulous scientists from multiple organizations have been able to make vaccines for coronavirus in less than a year. So there are, there are questions about why it hasn't taken very long. And uh, the, the pressure now on, on pharma is to respond to that and look at how we can accelerate ways of, of making drugs going forward. But in the past, and probably still now, the industry is the second most hated in the world after oil and gas, which baffles me because our only purpose is to make products that can treat, cure or prevent disease. But really, we shouldn't let this crisis go to waste. We should use the increased focus to talk about what we do in a more meaningful fashion. We should demystify medicines and we should use this opportunity to make sure that our messaging is memorable for the right reasons and engage people and excite them about what we do, especially children. So I'm a real proponent of engaging kids and inspiring kids to, into science. There are so many that fall out of science and they see it as, you've got to be uber intelligent, you've got to be geeky to, to do this. What we haven't mentioned today and uh, what we're just on, on the cusp of seeing the impact of is Brexit. And from an industry perspective, we get a lot of talent from abroad and we're already seeing that perhaps that talent is going to shy away from the UK. So I want to ensure that we are talking to kids, we're inspiring and engaging kids about science in the UK because we need to generate the next generation of researchers, of scientists to make these, these medicines in the future. Martin, just one uh, question to you, just thinking about how brands represent themselves to sort of uh, follow on from what Claire was saying. If brands come to you and they say, look, we want to become more inclusive, we want to show that we are inclusive, but but we're worried about getting it right we're, and we're tying ourselves up in not so much that we're not doing it at all. What's the kind of advice that you give? Where should people start? Yeah, I mean, actually, that's ultimately the the problem that we are helping brands solve, that there's just this fear I sometimes say that political correctness has become the enemy of inclusion just because of the the, the extremity of the, a word is going to offend a whole community. People understandably shy away from speaking or engaging in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, our, our fundamental value proposition is that with the influencers that we work with who have you know, disability, that it's getting disabled people in the room and it's co-creating solutions, whether that's product, comms, you know, internal recruitment policies, whatever it might be. It, it's that we can de-risk that fear by actually bringing the community in, the sort of thought leaders from the community in the room and helping to shape what the answers are from the people that are ultimately going to hopefully benefit from it, but potentially so it doesn't go wrong at the same time. Are you seeing people with disabilities being brought in from the start then rather than you create a campaign and then someone says, oh, hang on, we need to make it more diverse? Are you seeing this move towards them being involved right at the beginning? That's what we're driving at Purple Goat. So we, we are now you know, in with big brands who are coming to us in the early stages of whatever ideation is going on. But I, I think that's, you know, quite a recent thing that's happening, whereas most brands, it's an afterthought at best. I, I think the other worry I have is that brands think inclusion has to cost a lot. And I think there is a budgetary element, but 
but it's an investment in my opinion because if you invest in inclusion as we said at the beginning then there are pure business benefits but actually a lot of things don't have to be ever so costly or expensive in inverted commas um, it's just about attitude and education and lots of things actually click in you know once they're just part of the normal dna of a brand it, it doesn't have to be a silo or a separate thing it's inclusion is inclusion right and one thing I'm always interested in when I see someone who advises brands and, and businesses on their marketing is how they do their marketing themselves. And I've seen your videos on LinkedIn and I know you've been quite active on TikTok, Martin. Can you just tell me a bit more about these videos that you're putting out there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the general reason is obviously I've always wanted to raise awareness about personally living life with a disability. As Claire was saying, you know, that thing around people and purpose is very much what powers all that I've done regardless of the current venture with Purple Goat. With TikTok it's becoming a very big social media platform so I would probably put it down more as a research experiment from my own perspective. I've not really found my feet in a sort of comfortable confident way with TikTok but there was one I did where I lip-synced a bit of coming to America that got quite a few views and it was quite tongue-in-cheek and silly but we are working with disabled influencers who are on TikTok there's an example of Lucy Edwards who got a viral video that was to do with celebrations and how as a blind lady she's able to know which of the the chocolates is which flavor Um, and so yeah there's actually ways that people are connecting brands like Mars and celebrations with massive audience because Lucy's got um, certainly a far bigger following than I do on TikTok but there's definitely something just about exploring where attention is and the more attention moves to TikTok that makes it more valuable for brands and for marketing purposes. Yeah you've got to be experimental and try it out yourself haven't you so you understand it and then you can advise others. Yeah even if it's not quite up to the the, the high benchmark of others exactly it is just to to get your hands dirty and understand what it actually is all about. Thank you for joining me, Martin Sibley from Purple Goat Agency and Claire Thompson, Agility Life Sciences. You're listening to The Business of Cambridge, brought to you by CMR. Next, we're going to hear from our resident expert in property, Gavin Human from Exquisite Home. So, Gavin, I really remember that moment back in March 2020. I think it was around five o'clock when the Prime Minister said, right, that's it, folks, you've all got to go and work from home. And we packed everything up, we said farewell, kind of thought we'd be back in in a week or two's time. (laughs) That turned out to be wrong. Um, So for you working in the property sector in and around Cambridge, what have you noticed about how businesses adapted to this big shift? I think we'd already begin to see a shift over the last uh, three or four years with regards to people working from home, maybe only two or three days a week. And what the coronavirus done has most certainly accelerated that. I think there's a bit of excitement first to working from home. It was a new challenge. But I do think people now realise that it brings its own challenges itself, whether that be with children running around or being in a confined space. I don't think home working is as rosy as we sometimes make it out to be but I do think a lot of companies have done a fantastic job at at adapting and employees have done a fantastic job at adapting to the current situation. 
Yeah, it was something that I saw fairly early on, um, CEOs in Silicon Valley. You could almost get this sense of giddiness with them thinking, oh, hang on, <laughs> I might be able to save a few dollars here and there with not having to pay for all of this office space. Do you think that people at the top understand the challenges for people within the business? Like you say, if they've got caring responsibilities or people working from their bedrooms? No, I don't think they did to begin with, but I do think they do now. I think working from home, yes, you've got the the flexibility, there's a better work-life balance, but I don't think anybody could see the challenges that it was going to bring with it as, as well. But I think the once drab office environment where we're all crammed into a, a cubicle, quite often some of them windowless, will become a thing of the, the past. I think we will now have offices that will become a, a destination where you want to go to that provides an experience, a connection uh, and a choice for people to go into. I do think we're going to see a significant change over the next few few years. And the companies that get it right will win significantly. They'll attract the talent that really do want to work for them. And what have you seen, say, in business centres in the area? So I know a lot of companies, they're tied into a lease and pandemic or no pandemic, that's it, they're, they've got to keep on paying that rent every month. But in business centres, it's a lot more flexible, isn't it? So people are hot desking. So have you seen business centres change to try and make sure that the tenants stay in these ways that, you know, you're saying that they have to offer a little bit more? I think we'll see them change more over the coming year. I think they do offer flexibility where in the past there have been a six-month or 12-month contract. I think we will see a lot of these places and even your normal high street offices offering rolling contracts. But I think these business parks will become hubs for companies. I think there was some research out recently that said out of the workforce, only 8% of people wanted to work five days a week from home. So I do think the office is, has still a very important part to play in our uh, work-life balance. But I think these business centres will adapt. That I think the interiors will become far more invigorating and, uh, and engaging. I think they'll also offer coffee shops and snack stations within them. Uh, I think they'll also do yoga sessions at lunchtime or running clubs. I think they're going to have to adapt to make sure they, they include everybody. And I think you also want to feel a sense of community within these working environments. And I think we all miss that social interaction. We go into work, we want to talk to our colleagues or to Stephen across the road. Um, we want to be engaging people. So I think these business centres will adapt as well. Yeah, I think it's about getting that balance, isn't it? Because every time I have gone into the office, I've thought, oh, great, I'm going to the office and you get all of this extra mental stimulation. But then you're also having to fit in the commute. And I'm always thinking, oh, what have I left behind? (laughs) Um, So just tell me a little bit about what you've seen in the nature of the inquiries that you've had for home buyers. Are people staying put and extending or are they trying to move to places that have got more scope for a home office? definitely a scope for home office. Over the last four or five years, we've seen people moving out of London and even Cambridge move people moving away from the city centre, going out into the villages because they don't need to necessarily go into work five days a week. We have seen where previously we've had a house with an office space or a study. What we have begun to see, and again, over the last year, it has changed enormously. People wanting to work from home, but not from within the house. 
there's one of the companies we deal with, Snuggeries, who are based in St. Neots, where they do these office pods. And again, that's something that's really going to come to the forefront of buying a house where people want space to have an office pod, a refurbished garden shed that they feel as though they can walk out to in the morning and go to work. And at six o'clock at night, they can lock up and go back home. Yeah, it seems to me it's about boundaries, isn't it? So there's such a blur between working in the home and then living in the home. And people often think it would be great to work from home. And then you're kind of forced into that situation. You suddenly realise, well, actually, I do like that separation between being in the office and being able to close the door and then having my home life. So you're seeing that a lot then, are you, that people are, are starting to find that maybe it's, it's not as great as it might first appear? Absolutely so. I think home, home working is here to stay. But I think we've also got to take into fact that if you are working from home, it can be lonely. You can feel isolated. So I think it's down to the employers to get that balance right. The other thing I think we've got to look at is active commuting. Cambridge, it's been a thing there all the time, people cycling, commuting into work. But I think, again, that's another aspect of the work-life balance we're going to see change as well. More people are going to want to cycle to work. And what facilities does the office have? Shower facilities, wash facilities? Can you lock your bike up outside or is there dry storage? This active commuting, again, I think is something that we're going to see become an an integral part of our work-life balance. So one last question for you, Gavin. What's the impact going to be on Cambridge property prices? Any chance they're going to go down in the near future? No. At the end of the day, it's always about supply and demand. Uh, Cambridge, regardless of what happens over the next few years, is still a fascinating city and people will want to live there. Thank you, Gavin. Next time, we'll be talking business resilience with two founders who've battled fire, floods and, of course, a pandemic. Plus, John Bridge from the Chamber of Commerce tells us how local businesses are faring. Now Brexit has become reality. Business of Cambridge is a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. It was presented by Sue Keogh and brought to you in association with CMR. Business advice for small companies.